0: turn to Matthew chapter 1. You've heard that Christmas is said it's the most wonderful time of the year, right? You're singing that, and you think that, and of course, a lot of times, that's certainly going to be the case. However, for a lot of people, Christmas really is a crisis of hope. Um, They feel hopeless, unworthy. They are so overwhelmingly discouraged by their circumstances, and it's just like a grayness that just kind of comes over them. And and I would imagine I'm not the only one here that has had times where you just feel completely unworthy and quite discouraged, right? All of us have. We, uh, we understand that. And there are times where you feel like you're close to despair, you don't think your life is ever going to take color again, and you've, you've got some good reasons why you think and feel that way. But not only that, if you look at our personal life, but if you start looking about what's taking place in our world. Let's take a, just stop for a minute. It's not just on TV. These are our lives that are being destroyed. You got deaths and drugs and divorce and deteriorating national debt. You got disasters. You've got Islamic terrorists that are taking it to a whole nother level. You got children being massacred in schools. You know, have you ever just taken a minute to think, like, what is actually going to happen when my kids? are my age. What is this world going to look like? Is it, is it possible that God just said, you know what, humanity is so wicked and lost, I'm just I'm letting it go. I'm going to let it spin so wildly out of control and I'm just going to allow decimation to take its work, its natural causes. Have we just come to like dead man's curve and God said, you know what, that's it, I'm going to let you go over it. Uh, is that what's going on in our world? You know, we'd really like to find hope and people are looking for it. People are really actually in this season, Christmas, they think they could find hope. And you know, like, you know, I you know some Christian friends and they seem there's hope in Jesus. There's hope seemingly in the Bible. I think I'll take a look. And they open up to the very first book in the New Testament. They, uh, they know enough to say, well, something about Jesus begins with this New Testament. And they open it up and they start reading a record of a genealogy. And they're like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> a genealogy. that. Uh, that doesn't sound very exciting. Sounds boring, meaningless. List of names, can't pronounce half of them. You have no idea who most of these people ever are, and you're just like, there can't be any hope in that. Does the New Testament really begin with hope for humanity? Well, let's take a few minutes and find out. You look at chapter one, verse one. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the Son. Of David, the son of Abraham, the genealogy of Jesus. First of all, it's going to demonstrate the greatness of God's sovereignty. You need to know something that God is moving history forward, and He's doing it in an orderly and a purposeful way. And now, God's not in a hurry. Okay, He's never in a rush. But he is unstakeably moving history forward now when you come to a genealogy i know that you're probably not thinking a lot about your genealogy and you may not even know i'm not even sure who my ancestors are but for the jewish people in biblical times your genealogy was critically important for instance if you were of the levitical priesthood or from from aaron a descendant of aaron if you came back from the babylonian captivity and you wanted to serve in the temple as a priest like your ancestors did You always had to prove it with a genealogy. In the Jewish culture, genealogies were critically important. Property, uh, all of your heritage, patrimony, land that you inherited, all of that was all tied up in you being able to show your genealogy in your history that is why the jewish people memorized them and they had them recorded it would be the equivalent to not know your G- genealogy be like the equivalent of you traveling overseas and you losing your passport and your social security card you're just like well you know i don't know where i left it the pool or at the hotel or something like that no big deal right it becomes a big deal no passport traveling is going to get a little rough but no genealogy you're nothing It's why the Jews took it so incredibly important time to take time to make sure that they never lost their genealogy. And Matthew begins in the very last place that you and I would think we'd find hope, in a genealogy. It shows you that individuals are important. You think like nobody knows my name, I'm meaningless. Your name is known by God. Genealogies show that. And you know, we have a family tradition at our home every Christmas. I read the Christmas story. We do it every Christmas morning. But I, I, I confess, I, I always skip the genealogies. Is there anybody here that doesn't? Oh, good. Oh, good. Okay, so I feel all right. I skip it because like, nah, it's not going to be very interesting for the kids. Uh, they reenact the nativity thing with the little playmobile soldiers. How are you going to do that with a genealogy? You just skip it, right? But, what it, but God doesn't skip the genealogy. In fact, he begins with it. And there are actually two genealogies given of Jesus' descent. One in Matthew, he begins the New Testament, and then also in Luke chapter 3. Luke records the genealogy on Mary's side, Jesus' mother. Matthew records it on Joseph's side, Jesus' adopted father. Joseph is not Jesus' father through birth, but he is his legal father because he adopts him. And so you notice what it says it's Jesus the Messiah the anointed one, the son of David. This is the record. Why? What's so big deal about David? And you know, we have like at Christmas time and people have put up the star of David, son of Jesus, the son of David. Why? What does that matter? Well, it's of critical importance. David is the king of God's choosing. And God makes a promise, a covenant with David. You find it in 2 Samuel chapter seven, where he actually says, I am going to do this. In 716, he says, Your house, God telling David, and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. That is extremely important. And your throne will be established forever. About a thousand years before Jesus shows up on the scene, God makes this covenantal promise. And so they're all thinking and focusing on who is going to be this Messiah? Who will be this eternal king? But you have to find that you are aligned to David. And so when you come to Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, gives Jesus, like, human ancestry. Beginning in verse 18, it shows he has a divine heredity, and we'll look at that in a minute. But he is called the Son of Man, the Son of God. And really, all Jewish history prepared the for the way, for the birth of Jesus. It not only chrono- gave you an understanding chronologically of God's working in history, but when you come to the genealogy of Jesus, it all prepares, all of Israel's history, focuses, as it finds its apex on one, Jesus, the Messiah. Genealogies were so important that for a Jewish person, when they, they actually considered that marriages were brought together by God, even children were created and act as an act of God's divine sovereignty. Jesus, by the way, said the same thing about marriage. Remember what God joins together, let no one come between. Remember that? And so when they saw genealogies, it was like a record of God's sovereign work in history. Even if you married like the most unlikely person, like how did that happen? You know, like maybe that happened to you. You know, you married up. and like, I don't know how it happened. I'm, I'm in that world. Like, I married Karina, okay? Guess who got the raw end of that deal, all right? It was not me. It's Karina, right? And, but it doesn't matter. God is involved and is at work, and that's very much how the Jewish people saw this. In fact, genealogy was so important that you remember that um, Mary and Joseph, they are making their way to Bethlehem. She's nine months pregnant. She's about ready to give birth. It wasn't like, you know joseph's saying hey let's get away from all the relatives man they're just you know it's just crazy and all this pressure you're about ready to give birth let's go check out the bed and breakfasts down in bethlehem i hear they have some nice places let's go make that 90 mile trek it's going to take a while no problem you don't mind walking that way do you honey they're not going down for a little getaway on the holiday do you know why they're traveling from their hometown of nazareth to bethlehem because joseph is from the family of david you could think of it this way that the nation still identified people genealogically. It was so critically important to who they are. And it is very interesting and significant that if you are going to have a claim that you're the Messiah, you've got to be able to show through a genealogical record that you are from the line of Abraham and David. And it's interesting, when the temple is destroyed in AD 70, when Babylon comes in and just wrecks havoc and actually destroys the temple... They burned all of the genealogical records. It's as if God was saying, this one, my son, he's it. In fact, even today, there is no Jew that can try to trace their line to the line of David because it's all gone. The records are gone. It's as if God is saying, my son promised Abraham, David, he's the one. And it could be checked out in the temple. In fact, these records that we find here very well may come, came from a temple record. So when we come to the genealogy of Jesus, it demonstrates the greatness of God's sovereignty, but there's something else. It displays the depth of God's grace. This is something that you need to know, that, that God uses flawed humans to carry the future forward. We'd like to think that God uses the people that are almost perfect, right? God wants to show that I'm in control, and he uses some of the most flawed people possible. When you look at this genealogy, far from like a call, like the role of the Institute for Halos and Harps. I mean, this sounds like someone, people that you read like are in our county jail this morning because things got a little out of hand on Saturday or in our federal prison because they've done something rather heinous. It's like, whoa, what in the world are some of these people doing in the line of Messiah? You know, by seeing God's hand moving in history, it gives us hope for today. That's one of the things that the genealogy does. And so when it says it's the genealogy of Jesus, Jesus is, his name means Yahweh saves, and he is the Messiah or the Christ. Hebrew, Messiah, that means what? Anointed one. Christ, Greek word Christos, means what? Anointed one. Jesus, Christ. You always want to think anointed one, and to be anointed was to show not only God's choice, but it was also to show God's empowerment. The Jewish people had three different types of men that they anointed, a prophet, a priest, or a king. If you were going to be one of those three, you were anointed with oil. It signified that God was identifying that you were the man to fill that role, and it also signified that God's going to empower you to do it. In the case of Jesus, he's all three. He's prophet, he's priest, and he's king. And Matthew's really going to hone in on the fact that he is the king of kings and it gets started son of david son of abraham now you're going to find as you start reading in verse two like abraham was the father of isaac isaac the father of jacob and it keeps going the father of it literally could be translated the ancestor of it doesn't mean that he was like i'm dad this is my son it could skip over several generations and it does there are multiple generations that are skipped over because it literally is highlighting key ancestors and so you need to understand it's like it's the ancestor of. In fact, they actually put it together. It's, a, it's in groups of 14. Why? You can actually see that in verse 17, that they're in groups of 14, because it was meant to be memorized, and it was by the Jewish people. Now, what's the big deal about Abraham? Well, Abraham is a critically important person in history. The one true living God who created all things makes a promise to Abraham calls him out of a real ultra-pagan life, and in Genesis chapter 12, he makes a promise, and he says in verse 3 to Abraham, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You, Abraham, I'm going to do it, and it's going to be through you. And again, he reiterates in Genesis 17:7. 7, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Now, you'd think like, well, Abraham must have been just one stellar guy if God's going to make those kind of promises. Actually, Abraham had a little lying problem, didn't he? In fact, he made Pinocchio look good at different times. He could tell some pretty serious whoppers. And it wasn't just once. It seemed like that was a default setting. I'm in trouble. Things aren't looking good. This could cost me. I'll start lying. Met people like that. Maybe you've been like that. You can identify with Abraham. And so you see, there he is. Abraham's the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, man. Talk about a slick guy. You know what his name means, don't you? Supplanter. Trickster. Even cheater. And that's what he did. I mean, he was kind of like a Las Vegas card shark. He he cheated dad, his brother, his uncle. That was kind of his default setting. What in the world is he doing in the line of Jesus? And here he is. And notice... You find here that Judah was, uh, you find that Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Again, a reminder that, remember what Judah and his brothers did. They forsook Joseph. They, they sold him into slavery after they decided not to kill him. Judah, it was prophesied by his dad Isaac, though. It said that the scepter shall never depart from Judah. That's why this Jesus is from the tribe and the lion of Judah. That's all based back at this lineage that Jesus has promised to come from this line. And this is where it's like the fireworks start going off. You get to verse 3, and Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. In fact, as you look at the genealogy, you're going to find five women listed. Whoa, time out. Jewish records never had females. No women. Not to men a slight. It's just that they were always tracing it through the males. And here you've got a woman, Tamar. She must be awesome. She must be such a holy, virtuous woman that she will be the very first woman mentioned in the New Testament. In the lineage of Jesus, she's going to stand out. So who is this woman when you look at history and his story? It's display the depths of God's grace. Tamar, you're going to find her, you find her really in action in Genesis chapter 38, which might be one of the more painful chapters of the Bible to read because it is a story of sordid incest, prostitution, and deception. And it all finds its origins in this woman named Tamar. Let me give you a little bit of the history. Judah, uh he had some he had some children. His firstborn son was a boy that he named Air. That was a mistake. Please do not name if you have a kid, do not name your kid Air, okay? That would be too error to do that, all right? And yet he does. If I visit you at the hospital and you name your kid Air, we're going to hey, okay, let's change this before cuz they are setting him up for failure, and that's exactly what happens here. Air is such an evil guy. We don't know exactly what he does, but God literally kills him. God just intervenes and drops him. So according to Jewish practices that meant that the next son was to marry Tamar. So it takes place but so that second son Onan marries Tamar but he's like, "I don't I don't want to carry the, my brother's line on through her. I'm not interested in that sort of stuff. No way." And so guess what? He will not have a child through her so her brother's line can be continued and He's, he's also so wicked that God literally destroys him and takes him out, kills him. Now, Judah, you know, he's all processing this. He's like, man, this Tamar gal, she is bad for my boys. I got another one. I'm going to start doing the delay and distraction thing, you know. I don't really want my next son to have to marry her. Look at this. I'm 0 for 2. This is not good. And Tamar sees that Judah is trying to just, just do an end around her under. her and so tamar takes matters into her own hands she concocts this evil scheme to get pregnant and so what she does is she dresses up as a prostitute and she goes and places herself in front of a cultic temple because she does at this particular temple because she knows that judah her father-in-law is going to come by there and she knows what kind of man he is and so he solicits her seeing her she's got a veil over her face he doesn't know that it's his own daughter-in-law they go through with it she gets pregnant and she's not just expecting a child she's expecting twins in fact you find them listed there in verse 3 judah was the father of perez and Zera by tamar Ugh. <laughs> you find that shocking does that? You're like, hey, wait a second here, man. I came to church. Tell me some sort of nice little Christmas story. I'm prob, we're probably the only church, uh, sure, certainly in Waco, but maybe even in America, that's doing the genealogy for the Christmas sermon, right? Come on. What are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking that God wants us to know something. God wants us to know about just how gracious and awesome he is. He's putting his grace on on display. Because if God can use the product of incest, harlotry, fornication, and deception with like Judah and Tamar, then he must be a God of grace. Because there is no other explanation. He's certainly not working on merit, is he? No? You see that from the lineage here. We keep moving here, and we're going to come at the, in verse 3, you'll see several names that we know little about. But then as we keep moving here, you you come to verse 5, and you have Salmon, who is the father of Boaz by Rahab. Rahab, I've heard of her. In fact, it's always Rahab the harlot. Right. In fact, that's how she's referred to in the scriptures. Hebrews, James, they refer to as Rahab the harlot. No. We, oh, man, we've already blew it before. We can't, have a, we can't have this. We have Rahab the harlot? Wait, she's in the genealogy of Jesus? What's going on here? For the Jewish mind, they're like, oh my goodness, we don't want to be thinking about this. And yet here it is in this line of Messiah. So who is this woman? Well, Rahab is a Canaanite, and the Canaanites are like the mortal enemy of God's people. We first encounter when Joshua is about ready to move into the promised land. Remember that on the other side of the Jordan River, Jericho is this fortitude city, man. It is the fortress city. They got to get through that to get into the promised land. They're not sure what to do. God says, I want you to run around the city. You just keep praying, on singing, and then on the seventh day, I'm just blow the walls apart. I'll take care of this, and I'll show you who's going to win your wars. You better learn some lessons. So Joshua sends some spies in and they kind of search it out. And of all the people, of all the people in the city, guess who they find to hang out with and get information from? It's Rahab, the professional prostitute oh, that's bad history, man, but there it is. It's right there in black and white. You can read about it in Joshua chapter two. So they go ahead and and she says, listen, we're afraid of you. We know that God is for you and not just our pagan little Canaanite gods. We know it's the one true God and we know that we're done for. Make me this promise. You save me and my family. And they said, all right, you give us cover. You do this. You take a scarlet cord and you wrap it around your window and that'll be our sign, and we'll spare you. We see that scarlet cord, and of course, that's what happens. Um, It's really interesting. This Rahab, do you see that? She not only is spared, but how does this work out? Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. She marries someone in the Messianic line, and When you see Boaz, Boaz is perhaps one of the greatest men of the Old Testament. This guy is a stud. This guy is just noble. He's got everything going for him. Where does he come from? He comes from a godly mother. Rahab not only is saved from destruction, she's saved, literally. She believes in the one true God. Her heart has changed, and it is her son that becomes this great figure in the line of the Messiah where does that come from? That tells you what? It doesn't matter how wicked you are. You might be a professional prostitute, and I tell you what, we are so glad you're here because we got hope for you. We have Jesus, and he can change lives, and his genealogy shows that. And she has a very godly son by the name of Boaz. And you're thinking, okay, well, good. We're, we're getting past that here. Let's keep moving here in this genealogy, and all of a sudden, whoa, 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 whoa. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. We're the next generation. Here we have Ruth. Now, Ruth, okay, we've all heard about Ruth probably. She's got a very famous book in the Old Testament written about a good chunk of her life. Do you know who she is, though? Is she Jewish? No. Was Rahab? Come on, she's a Canaanite. No, she's not Jewish. Well, Ruth must be. No. She's a Moabite. All you, Moabite, that's, that's weird. Why would you call your Moabites? Don't know much about them. Just keep moving. Actually, do you know about the Moabites? The Moabites, man, their entire race was despised by the Jewish people. Do you know why? Because their entire race was the product of incest. Are you familiar with this? You know, it's, it's right there in black and white in Genesis 19. God destroys the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He tells Lot and his wife and his kids, you can get out, but don't even look back. It's going to be that bad. But you know, Lot's wife is kind of like a lot of us. God says it like, well, I don't know. If he tells me not to do it, I better look back because it must be something worth looking at. And she turns around and she does and God turns her into a pillar of salt. Just a reminder, when God says something, he means business. The idea of trifling around, that doesn't work with God. And sometimes there's some pretty harsh consequences. So Lot takes off with his two daughters. They are fearful and they're hiding out in a cave and the oldest daughter is fearful. Like, man, this might be the only man left. And he's our dad. How will our line continue? How will the family continue? And she concocts this plan. We'll get dad drunk. And then we will have sex with him. We'll sleep with him. <laughs> Are you serious? If you ever any question whether the Bible is inerrant, the fact that it records all of the gory details and never glosses over. You know what? People, they gloss over things like that. We want it to look good and sanitize it. God never does that. So she concocts this plan, and one night the older daughter sleeps with him, the next night the younger daughter does. Genesis 19, verse 36, Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab, where we get the Moabites. That's where Ruth's from. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Amni, Ami, Ben Ami, for he is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So wicked were the Moabites that God says in Deuteronomy 23:3, he says this, No Ammonite and no Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. That's just not going to work. They are that wicked. And yet, this is where Ruth comes from. and After a series of just amazing events, she marries who? Boaz, this great man of God. And she becomes the great-grandmother of David, the great king. Do you see that? Look at this. She, She marries, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David the king. Wow, is that not amazing? And you're just like, whoa, look at this. God takes some of the hardest and most difficult situations. Gentiles, utter Gentiles. Don't get the idea that you're like an afterthought, like, most of us here are plan B. we got a few Jewish people in our church, but most of us are Gentiles, and we don't even know exactly where our lineage is. You're not plan B. God has always had this a part of a plan. That's why, it's, that's why these women are in the genealogy, so we don't miss the gospel for the world. Well, look at this. Well, you think like, man, when you hit David, man, it should be smooth sledding here on out, right? Well, I don't know about that. Verse 6, Jesus, G- Jesse was the father of David the king, a great king, and David was the father of Solomon, awesome, oh, oh no, by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Ew, man, what is going on here? You, i tell you what, if you, you're not familiar with the story there, this, how, what is going on here? Who had been the wife of Uriah? Why does that have to be in the genealogy of Jesus? You remember David. You know, he'd been king for a little while and, you know, he kind of figured the war thing out. He was good at it, you know, because God fought his battles and he he looked like, man, I'm an awesome leader. He decided one year, you know what, I'm going to take the year off. I don't think I need to go into war. And he sent his generals out. I said, I think I'm going to hang out at the palace, right? And, you know, you could be a real godly man. David did some great things. God did some awesome things through David. But you can put yourself in situations where you will completely become unraveled. And so he's hanging out at the top of his palace, bored out of his mind, I'm sure of it. He's just kind of looking for trouble. And he sees it. He sees a woman by the name of Bathsheba bathing. Instead of like, I don't belong here and I need to get back in my little palace and go do something kingly-like. No, 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 no. He gets one of his servants and said, who is that? I said, well, that is Bathsheba. That is the wife of Uriah, like one of your key men. And he says, bring her to me. And he does. And they have a this secret sexual relationship, but it's not secret for long because she becomes pregnant. So she sends word back, "I am with child." David's like, "This is a bad situation for the king of Israel, the king of God's own choosing. This is not good. I will fix it. That's what I'll do." So he sends a message, to bring Uriah, the Hittite, one of his key guys. Bring him back, okay? Need to talk with him, consult with him, hang out, have a nice party with him. And so he does. And he has this party with him. And then he says, you know, kind of go home, go to your wife. You know, just kind of have normal, natural relations with his wife is what he's thinking, right? And then it'll, I'll get clean. No one will ever know that I was ever involved, right? But I'll tell you what, he didn't understand the integrity of a guy like Uriah. Uriah's like, no, nope, no, nope, not doing that. All my comrades, they're all fighting the war. They're all fighting the battles and they're sleeping in tents, getting ready for tomorrow's battle where they're going to put their line, life on the line. No, I'm going to sleep at the doorstep of the palace. David's like, get out. No, man. No, no, no. I'm not going. Go see your wife. No, nope, won't do it. So David's like, man, I don't, I'm going to take matters in my own hands. I will get him drunk. And people think this way, right? You infuse alcohol into your situations. This is going to happen a lot this week. And they think like, that's going to really make things better, Right? You might be in for a shocking surprise what that might do. He thinks, well, I'll get him really drunk and then I'll send him home. And he's like, yeah, that's not a good idea. But you know what? It doesn't matter. He will not go. David's like, man, this is not working. All right, plan B, what am I gonna do? So he writes a letter and has it sent to his leading generals and actually has Uriah deliver it. And that letter says this, I want you to go and I want you to press in as close to the city as you can. And I want Uriah, to lead the charge. And when you're up at the, at the head of the city, right there by the gates, when it's the heat of the battle, I want you to pull back. And they do. And Joab sends word back to David recounting the battle and all that happened, which, by the way, was a huge tactical error. You didn't do things like that. And he reports, and Uriah, your servant, is dead. In essence, he said, you killed him. Well you'll find that uh, God has a way of confronting your sin. Some of us have had to learn the hard way on that, haven't we? He He will make it known and he will deal with you. And he does. He sends Nathan the prophet and David just comes unglued and unraveled. He repents of his sin. And Bathsheba does give birth to a very sickly child who doesn't live long. And so David then ends up marrying Bathsheba and they have another child and that child is... Solomon, one of the great kings of Israel. And you look at this and you're like, what in the world? You see all these generations? And if you read through all of them, these are, many of these are very wicked people. I mean, they're, they're idol worshipers, they're Gentiles, adulterers, liars, they're cursed kings, and yet they're all in the line of Jesus. They worship pagan gods. Why is this? Because God is trying to send a message to humanity. I am a God of salvation. I am the God of Jews and Gentiles. And I will bring my purposes to the end. Do you know how the Bible closes? The very last page of the Bible, some of the final words we hear from Jesus after a whole book of identifying him as the supreme Lord of Lord and King of Kings. Do you know how the book ends? Jesus makes this statement. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. And he says this, listen, Revelation 22, 16. I am the root and the descendant of David. The bright morning star. That's my line. I come from it through my human identity. The Gentiles aren't an afterthought. And it's like Jesus wants to make that crystal clear. I'm a God of salvation. You know, it's almost as if God is, when he gives the genealogy, it's like he's saying, see, I did it. You know what? I, just like I said, my plan succeeded. And I used flawed, really flawed humans to make it happen. Famine in Egypt couldn't starve me out. 400 years of slavery couldn't end my plan, could not shackle me. Wilderness wanderings couldn't stop me. A Babylonian captivity cannot thwart my plans. I am a sovereign God and I am moving history forward according to my plan and I will not be thwarted even through very flawed individuals. In fact, to show you how powerful and mighty I am, the greatness of God, I will incorporate them and use them. I'll tell you what, that gives me huge hope. You see, we all find it in the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. It demonstrates the greatness of God's sovereignty. It displays the depth of God's grace. That is grace, every one of those names that are in there. They shouldn't be there, but they are because God's gracious. But let me tell you one other thing that the genealogy of Jesus does. It distinguishes the identity of God's Savior. It's like God doesn't want us to miss this message of grace. Look at verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. All of a sudden, we have a change. You see that Joseph the husband of Mary instead of the father of the father of? Because Joseph is only a legal father to Jesus. And it's through the legal the legal lineage of Joseph that Jesus is the rightful king, the king, the son of David, son of Abraham, but his human lineage is through Mary. In fact, it's really interesting when it says whom, that's, that's feminine, it's referring to Mary. And it's to show us this, and this is so critically important because this is what Christmas is about, that Jesus identifies with us. He identifies with a sinful humanity. You, me, all of our wickedness. But he is separate from us. He identifies with us, but he is unique, and he is completely without sin. And so when you see it in context you see that they do name him jesus and he is born he is yahweh he saves and he is the messiah and so now let's come to some very familiar text look at verse 18. now the birth of jesus christ was as follows when his mother mary had been betrothed to joseph before they came together she was found to be with child by the holy spirit and joseph her husband being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her planned to send her away secretly They were in a legal contract. It was far more uh, superior than our understanding of engagement. He's like, I've got to break this because she is with child. I've never been with her like that. This is not going to work. And God says, this is my son. And I'm doing something so miraculous and so unique. And Mary is carrying the child. And so, verse 20, when he considered getting just divorcing her, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. This one's mine. The eternal Son of God is entering into humanity. Verse 21, and she will bear a son, and this is what you do. You call his name, what? Yeshua, Jesus. Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. His name is indicates his ministry. This is what he will do. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Why is all this here? Why the genealogy? Why open up the New Testament with a genealogy? It's to tell you this, that no sin, no matter how heinous your sin or my sin might be, how wicked we may have been, puts a sinner beyond the reach of a saving, sovereign God. That is the message of Christmas. You know, all the world's face. Of all the world's faiths that are out there, only Christianity announces a God who has embraced our pain with us and has taken our sin for us. That is Jesus. You know, He not only takes the penalty of sin away, He takes the power. But you've got to believe in Him. You know, I'm hoping to get a Christmas gift this year. You know where the place that I'm going to be looking to make sure I'm really hoping my kids haven't forgotten me? All right? Take notes. I see you out there. And you know where I'm going to look? I'm going to look under our family Christmas tree to see if there might be a present for me. And guess where God wants us to look to see where the gift is? His gift in the family Christmas tree of Jesus. He wants you to see it. And it's right here for us. The genealogy of Jesus reveals the hope of the gospel. We think God can't overcome our sins. The hope of Christmas hidden in the genealogy says this, I already have, believe me. So we see that we've got hope, and that's what the genealogy shows us. There's a guy by the name of Gordon Terpster that writes of the events that takes place when, when in World War II, Germany was just taking it to England and just bombing it into oblivion. In London, there was a, a dad and his son. They were in a building It got hit. And they fled from this building that had been destroyed and they ran back to their house because dad knew that it had already been hit and there was this huge crater in their front yard and he knew that that might be more safer than a building that's coming down on me. So he runs with his son, dragging him along and he, the dad jumps into this crater. It's pretty big. It's dark. The bombs are coming. The planes, Blitzkrieg is taking place. And he yells out to his son, jump. I'm waiting for you. His, his son, but daddy... I, I can't see you. He says, jump, I've got you. And so the little boy does. He jumps into the darkness and the father catches him. And I tell you this because you know what? Our lives may look bombed out. Our world certainly does. There's a lot of problems and a lot of issues. You, you and I, we got a lot of sin in our account, right? Jesus says, you just jump into me. The father says, come to me and I truly will save you. And I have promised to do this and I have delivered that gift Is found in his son. Let's pray. Lord, what an awesome passage of scripture. And perhaps for years we've just overlooked it or omitted it, but yet we see the hope of the gospel right there, shining forth in the lives of people who needed your grace just like us. And so, Lord, I already know of one man who placed his faith in Christ earlier this morning. Perhaps you are drawing others to do the same. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, man or woman, boy or girl, would you simply pray with me and say, God, I'm not sure how I got here today, but I'm here. And I I believe. I turn from my sin. I turn from my self-centeredness. And I trust in Jesus because I see him for who he really is, the savior for this world. Lord, be the Lord of my life. And Father, for all of us, May we have just a renewed sense of your sovereignty, your goodness, and your grace, that you love us, you're accomplishing your plan. We can trust you. We can have joy and we can have faith because we have Christ. And may that be the joy this Christmas season for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.